And we're thankful for the opportunities the Lord has given to us and provided for us over the course of these last couple of weeks. We've been down here in southern Florida. I was telling a couple of the brothers earlier that uh, we left our home on uh, January 4th. And uh, I think, I'm not mistaken, that since January 4th, this will be my 32nd message that I've spoken. And so it's... It's been a tiring time. I, I was telling Joyce earlier, I'm just tired. I'm tired. My, my body is tired. I'm not as young as I used to be, and I, I can't get all the stuff done that I used to be able to get done. And so I'm just a little tired. And I think uh, I scheduled into our schedule going home now. I'll have three weeks where we can just attend our home assembly and just be fed and be nourished and have time with the, with the saints there. And we're, we are looking forward to that before heading out on the, on the road again. So we're thankful to you. We're thankful for the hospitality that you've shown to us, for the love that you've shown to us, for the encouragement that you've given to us. And we pray that the Lord would bless you as well and bless his word to your hearts as we've heard it this, this past weekend. I told you that we were going to go and finish up a section that we started on Friday night. We're not going to do that. Over the course of this afternoon, um, I, my mind was kind of redirected, and I was telling Joyce on the way home, I just feel like over the course of these last several days, the Lord has been directing me in this particular area, in this particular direction. I need to share something different tonight than what I was planning on sharing. As, as I've been saying, we've been, we've been away for quite some time. We've been down here for several weeks. I've spoken at several of the different assemblies as we've been here. And during all the course of that time, I've spoken about the love of God, the doctrine of the love of God. I've, talking about, I've spoken about Joseph, and I spoke about the temptation of our Lord Jesus. And we spoke over the conference here concerning our mission. And, uh, and then this morning we were talking about Christian liberties and not once during this whole time I've been in southern Florida have I ever spoken about worship. Have I ever spoken about our responsibility and our worship unto the Lord. And so those thoughts were going through my mind this afternoon. And I thought that we would turn to, to Luke chapter 7 tonight. To a portion that is so very familiar to all of us. And one that we have heard many times in the breaking of bread as, as the brethren have gotten up and shared from this portion in his precious word. And we're going to read this section together again this evening. In chapter 7, and we're going to begin reading at verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. 
And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the day, since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And she loves much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word again. Let's look to the Lord. Father, we need your help. As we look into your word, we depend that thy spirit would lead our thoughts and lead our thinking in order that your son might be glorified and lifted up. And so we ask, Father, that your spirit would lead in our hearts and minds and that all things that are done and said tonight may bring glory and honor to thee. For we ask it in the name of thy beloved son. Amen. Now, I've said this a couple of times already, and I'm going to reiterate it again this evening, because I think it's an important point as we're going forward. And that is that we often read Scripture piecemeal. How many times have I said that this weekend? I think this is the third time that I've said that. When we go to the Word of God, most of the time for our times of devotion or for our times of reading, generally we read a chapter or we read a chapter or two, or if we're doing a devotional reading, we may read a portion of the Word. And typically, because we do those things and do it that way, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm not, I'm not criticizing that. That's a, it's a wonderful thing to be reading through the Word of God. It's a necessary thing. But it's also very helpful and very necessary. And you ought to become or get into the habit. I better move this or I'll be knocking it over pretty soon. Getting into the habit of reading books at a time in one sitting. Sit and read them through in one setting. And because when you do that, when you read a gospel through in one setting, you begin to see patterns and you begin to see things within the context overall that you may have missed otherwise. We recognize that when the, when the disciples wrote the gospels, and that's where we're focusing tonight, when the, gospel, when the gospels were written, they were written with very different styles, weren't they? They're very different styles. And the Lord, under inspiration, the, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, these men wrote, even though similar material in the synoptics, they wrote with very different literary styles. And it's good for us to see that as you read it over in, in one sitting. For example, the, the book of Matthew. When Matthew writes his, his uh, narrative, 
you will find that Matthew goes very much chronologically. See, I can keep getting you behind the pole here. He, he writes very much chronologically as he moves from chapter 1 through the birth narratives and on into the early ministry of, of the Lord, the baptism of the Lord, and on to his early ministry. And then he moves into, you remember in chapter 5, begins that, that Sermon on the Mount, and we see the wonderful authoritative teaching of our Lord Jesus. And when that finishes in chapter 7, all of a sudden the literary style that, that Matthew uses changes. And you'll notice that in chapters 8 and 9, he lumps together a whole lot of miracles all in a couple of chapters. And then when you get to chapter 10, he continues on. And so he is going through from the authoritative teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ to the evidence in in chapters 8 and 9 of the authority of this man who is God incarnate in the flesh over the natural things. And we see those miracles that are there. And then he continues on in the chronology. But you'll notice in Mark that Mark doesn't do that at all. He spreads out the miracles as he goes along in his, in his narrative, spreading them out. John, on the other hand, is very unique, isn't it? John is a very unique gospel. It is likely, and people debate the dates of writings all the time because it's very hard to pin down a date of a, of a signature in, in uh, the Scripture, But many would agree that John was likely the last gospel that was penned by John. The last gospel. And so John had the advantage, if you will, and we're not taking anything away from inspiration, of seeing what the other disciples had already penned concerning the Lord Jesus in Matthew, Mark being likely the first one. And you see in Mark that... I mean, you see in Matthew and, and in Luke that they kind of borrowed things from, from Mark as they wrote there, all under the inspiration of God as they laid out their accounts. But John now is able to look at the things that have already been taught, the things that have come out, and he's saying, oh, there was so much more than that. There were many other things that he did. We can't even contain them in this book. But I'm gonna, he wrote a very different accounts that you don't find in the synoptic Gospels, but are equally important to our learning and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where would we be in our teaching without that, uh, that wonderful upper room ministry that we find in, gospel, in, in the Gospel of John from 13 on through 16 and then into 17 in the priestly prayer. That's an interesting study all, all of its own, isn't it? To, to see the upper room ministry and follow the upper room ministry and see how all of that teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in that upper room leads to the prayer that He gives in chapter 17. And it's a very beautiful thing to follow. Now, all that to say that when we get to the Gospel of Luke, which we are in this evening... When we get to the Gospel of Luke, there are also markers in the, in the Gospel of Luke that, is, that are there to train our thinking. You will notice that in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, and you'll notice we read just before that, but in the chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke, that Luke now begins to give us these time markers, and the time markers say he was on his way to Jerusalem. It begins with he set his face like a flint 
to go to Jerusalem. And the Samaritans didn't want anything to do with him because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Then over and over, that is repeated. It'll be repeated in 13, I believe. I I think it's repeated again in 18. The whole idea is that from 951, and we're only in chapter 9 of 24 chapters. We're only in chapter 9. And he's already saying, everything else I'm going to say should be kept in light of his going to Jerusalem. Everything now that I'm going to be telling you should be kept in mind the shadow of the cross. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to offer himself as a sacrifice. He's going to to give his life a ransom for many. He's on his way to the cross. That's where he's heading. And everything now you you hear... John, I mean, Luke teaching is should be taken in light of his going to the cross, going to Jerusalem. But because that is in 951, what you see before it is all preparation, if you will, for what he is going to do. All setting up the stage, as it were, for what he is going to accomplish when he heads to Jerusalem. We have his teachings. But I guess, you know, you've seen the other Gospels, don't you? How he moves all over the place. He's going different places and going into Galilee and back into Jerusalem, up into Galilee and over. And the Gospel of Luke takes him everywhere he's going. It should be seen as his heading toward Jerusalem. Now, we are in chapter 7. Now, this falls before that time. This falls before the account of of 951, where he's seen as going to Jerusalem. So, we recognize that this precedes that time, but it is speaking of forgiveness that will be brought about as a result of his going to Jerusalem. That we'll see when we get into chapter 9. Yeah, when you get into chapter 9, which we won't obviously get to tonight. So, In our account in chapter 7, we have this story of a sinful woman who is forgiven. And we note that this takes place right in in this center portion, just before that narrative that we've just spoken of. Now, who exactly this woman is, we have no idea. Many have suggested all kinds of different names, and many have debated all those things, because that's what scholars do. They debate things. I'm not a scholar, so I don't debate things. Yeah, I was talking with someone about, about that this afternoon. Malcolm and I were talking about some. There are certain things I just don't debate anymore. And why don't I debate them anymore? Because they're fruitless. They bring no glory to the Lord. And all it is is an intellectual exercise to try and show that you're smarter than the other guy you're debating with. I don't need that in my life anymore. I don't need it. So I don't debate stuff anymore. So if you want to debate, find somebody else. And if it's your, if you have a wonderful ability at debating, then well, Lord bless you as you go forward doing that. But who this woman is, we do not know. This is an account that men have spoken of many, many times. I've heard many, many lessons on this portion because it is such a beautiful story. Now, the context of this story is important as well. And the context is that Jesus has raised the son of the widow of Nain. And he's demonstrated his power over death. 
He has already healed some who were close to death. By the time we get to this point in the narrative, he's already healed those who are close to death. But here is one who is actually in the casket on his way to the cemetery and he stops the casket. I mean, stops the procession and raises to life one who is dead and in the casket on his way to the cemetery. And he raises him up and restores him to his mother. Then when we get to chapter 9, which follows this account in chapter 7 that we're reading now, he's going to raise Jairus' daughter back to life. So he's demonstrating his power over death. The ability to raise men and women back to life. But here, after the raising of this boy, the word of this great miracle began to spread. And people from all over were coming to him. People from all over were flocking to him. The disciples of John were also sent by John to confirm that he was the promised Messiah. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? Are you the one? And what's the Lord tell them? Go tell John what you have seen. Tell him what you've experienced. Yes, the Messiah has come. Go tell John that you've seen those raised from the dead. You've seen people given their sight. You've seen these wonderful miracles that have been done. You've heard the words. And then the Lord questions the crowd and likens them to children, he says. And this is always one of those curious little phrases, isn't it? He, he likens the, the people to the crowd in the crowds and he likens them to children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. Come play my games with me. And he draws the lesson. It's an interesting little lesson. He draws the lesson of men who would not accept John, who would not accept Christ. We want our way. We want things our way. Come play with us or we're not going to play. You know? Children. And these were children, beggar children, usually that, that were in the street. And they, they joined you, asked you to join and, and listen to their games and play with their games. And then they expected some kind of money in return for, for what they did, for the acts they performed. Now, let's go to the story. That sets just a little bit of background. So you see what's going on. Now, let's get into the story a little bit. And this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time this evening. In this story itself. We're going to take it apart a little bit and hopefully put it back together at the end. One of the Pharisees asks him to eat with him. What was his motives? What was in his mind when he desired to have Jesus? This one who he knows has just raised this boy from the dead. He has seen the miraculous things that are going on. And now this Pharisee says, listen, I'd like you to come to my house for dinner. I'd like you to come to my house for a meal. Now, we cannot enter into the mind of the Pharisee, and the Scripture doesn't tell us the reasons for it. God in His providence had a purpose for it and a reason for it. But here we see a Pharisee, and in all likelihood, he wanted to have him in his home so that he could question him, so that he could learn more about him. Learn about his motives. Learn about his desire. Learn about what he really was thinking about himself and what he was doing. Was he serious as, as Nicodemus was? Not likely. But here was a Pharisee who when he asked him to come into his house to have a meal. 
Again, it's kind of hard to determine who this individual was. His name is Simon, but we don't, there are many, many Simons. It's just a very common name in, in the New Testament time, so it's very hard to pin down who it is. People want to go to different places and show and prove this and that, but uh, it really cannot be verified. Now, we're not told the reasons for this invitation, but I believe that he was just wanting to question him. But things do not turn out as Simon had planned. When we get to this account, the and I don't I don't usually like to get technical and stuff, but it's very necessary here to be able to look at at the verb tenses that are in this account in order for us to understand what is going on here. And I think it'll be very helpful if you haven't done it before. I think it'll be very helpful for you as we go through this to understand the, the different verb tenses and moods that are used here in this account in order to understand exactly what is going on. And so we're going to spend some time doing that as we, as we work through, as we work through this, this narrative. It goes like this. He sat down at the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. And, a, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. A woman of the city. We don't know what city. She was a sinner. And now the main actor of this story comes into the story. She's introduced into the narrative. And a brief description is given of her. She was a woman from the city. But, and she's not known. But her character was known. She was a sinner. She was a sinful woman. And now it's interesting, now as we look at this, where it says she was a sinner, that verb was is a imperfect indicative. It's indicative in mood, but it's imperfect. Now, imperfect, an imperfect mood tense, as you are aware, has the idea of an action that has begun but has not stopped. So the present tense might be, you might say, you are eating. The imperfect would say, you kept on eating. But, and this is where language is funny, whenever it is found, an imperfect is found in the to-be form of the verb, which is this is what it is, was is a to-be form, it takes on a past tense meaning. So, here is the first indication of this woman. She was, past tense, in the narrative account that's being given to us, she was a sinner. So, that is what was known of her. That is what they think of her. But it's a past tense in the narrative. And when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. She brought an alabaster vase, if you will, of, of oil. But notice what she does. When she, a sinful woman with a sinful reputation, knew that Jesus was in the house, she brought in this perfume. Somehow, this woman was able to get into this house, the house of a Pharisee, a ruler, 
unnoticed. Unnoticed. If the Pharisee had seen her coming in, he would not have allowed her in. She was, in fact, in his mind, a sinner. Somehow, this woman comes into this home, sneaks in, perhaps in the shadows, we have no idea how, but she comes into this room and she is there because Jesus is there. And then you hear a sound. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She stood behind him, weeping. This word for weeping is a very strong word. It has, a, it has the idea of a weeping from remorse, weeping from pain, weeping from sorrow of heart. Weeping, emotion, stirred emotion. We all understand the emotion that causes weeping. Whether it be a tragic thing that has happened, whether it be something that has happened to your your closest family members, this is from inside and she is just weeping and lamenting. And the sound of her weeping becomes clear and obvious. And she is overcome with emotion. Mourning, as it were. And it's in the present tense. And it's in an active voice. It has the idea that this was what she was doing. It was her that was doing the action. And it was continuing to go on. She was weeping and weeping and weeping. The sinner weeping. And while she was so broken, so broken, so emotional, she began to wash his feet with her hair. Wash him and dry wash him with her tears and dry them with the hairs of her head. A very poignant scene. If you can just imagine it in your mind, without question, this is a very moving and very emotional scene. And the word that is used here for wash is typically a word that would be also used for rain. So it has this idea of they were flowing. It was flowing tears. And these tears are dripping down. And she's, as you know, they're they're all reclined on the floor. And as they're sitting on the floor and the feet are stretched out behind them, This woman has come up behind him and now she is weeping and the tears that are falling from her eyes are touching the feet of the Lord Jesus and streaks, you can see streaks of of wetness moving across his feet. Streaks of wetness from her tears that are the only moisture she has outside of the oil to wash his feet. And as her tears are flowing, she begins to wipe his feet with her hair, with her glory. This is a tremendously humiliating and humbling thing that this woman is doing. It's bad enough to wash someone's feet, but to wash them and wipe them with your hair is a tremendously moving event. We've read it so many times we forget. 
the emotion here. We've read it so many times and studied it so many times that we forget how poignant this is. Can you hear her weeping? Can you hear her weeping? Can you see in your mind's eye her standing behind the Savior, stooped over, tears falling on his feet, and taking her long hair and bringing it around and wiping his feet to clean his feet off? Feet, as you know, in Eastern cultures, is that's the lowest of the low. You never, if you, you take off your shoe and give it to somebody, it's a sign of insult. The feet are considered to be the things, you know, the, the lowest of the low. And this woman is down. Wiping her feet with her hair. Mixing in the oil. Mixing in the oil. And the t- tears are running down. And so it says here in verse 38, And she stood behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and to wipe them with the hairs of her head. Now there we have an imperfect again, an imperfect active. So now you don't have the to be verb. So it means she continued. She kept on wiping them. She kept on crying. She kept on wiping them with the hairs of her head. It was a continued action that kept on going on. It's an action that began, but it hadn't stopped. She kissed his feet, imperfect again. She kept on kissing his feet. She kept on wiping them with her hair. She kept on kissing his feet. She kept on anointing them with the fragrant oil. She kept on. It didn't stop. Now, do you have the picture in your mind? Have I painted it well enough? I don't, I don't know if I have or not. Have I painted it well enough? You've read it so many times, but I want you to see it. There's this woman behind our Lord Jesus at his feet. Tears are flowing down. She's weeping and crying and lamenting. The noise is filling the room. She's anointing his Feet with the oil. She's wiping him with the hairs of her head. And the Pharisee sees all of this. And what is his response? Now I know without question that this guy is not a prophet. He cannot possibly be a prophet. If he was a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is that is touching him. For she is a sinner. You see the see the difference? When the narrative begins, it was she was a sinner. And we saw that that was a past tense because of the, the form in which it's found. The Pharisee in his own mind doesn't see any past tense. He uses a present tense. He says, this one, if he knew, she is a sinner. She is one who is continuing to be in that position as one who is a sinner. She is a sinner. And this is what he says. The Pharisee said, you know, I know if he's not a prophet because he would know this woman who's touching him and she should not be touching him. He is a holy man. He should not be being touched by this sinful woman. But Christ came into the world to save sinners. 
like you and I. And he was thinking these things. And our Lord Jesus, of course, being omniscient and understanding and hearing his thoughts, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Well, teacher, say it. I want to hear what you have to say. And he goes into this narrative. He goes into this little story or parable, if you will. There were two men. And they owed a great deal of money. Well, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. You have rightly judged. Then he turns to the woman. Then he turns to the woman. And this is absolutely beautiful. He turns to the woman. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course, he saw her. But he said, I want you to focus your eyes. I want you to focus your attention on this woman. Cast your eyes on this woman. I entered your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. She has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. This woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now, there's where we want to pause for just a moment, because now the tenses change. And this is the important thing to see here and that you might miss if you if you didn't take the time to study the tenses that are here. He goes now to the perfect tense when Jesus speaks and he says this woman, her sins. How does he say it here? Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. He uses a perfect passive The idea of the perfect tense is an action that has been completed in the past. An action that's completed in the past that does not need to be repeated. Is completed fully and completely in the past. And the effects of it, the results of it, continue on into the present. She was forgiven to the point that she remains forgiven. You see, that's telling us something about this story. This woman apparently had met Jesus before she came into this room. This woman had met Jesus somewhere outside of this place. And when he had an encounter with her, and when she confessed who she was and what she had done and the sinful condition of her life... Jesus forgave her. And she was forgiven. And that's what stirred her emotional response of worship to the Savior. She came in seeking out the Savior that she might worship Him. That she might pour out on Him her love and her devotion because He had forgiven her a sinner. And her proof 
was that she did this to him. You see, when it talks about, when it says here, your sins are forgiven, and then he goes on to say, um, and those who sat at the table, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. There, 47, therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. The loving much is a result of her being forgiven. It is not because she loved much that she was forgiven. The idea of the text is that she was now showing by her much love what had been the result of what had already happened to her. She had been forgiven, and because she was forgiven, she was loving much. And those who are forgiven little, love little. She was forgiven much. My brothers and sisters, I guess it's a simple question we need to be asking ourselves, huh? This evening, it's a simple question, isn't it? Has he forgiven you much? Has he? One person has had his sins forgiven much. All of us have been guilty before God. All of us have been forgiven much. Much. I don't care if you received Christ when you were a young boy or a young girl. I don't care if you received Christ when you were older in life. Regardless of even the age which you came to Him, He has forgiven you much. And He has given you forgiveness of sins. And He has given you everlasting life. And He's given you hope and purpose in life. And that should stir a response from us. If you feel like you've been loved much by the Savior, then we must love much in return. I use the word must. Perhaps I should have used the word we ought to love much. We ought to be those who are willing to lay out our worship before Him. Not just occasionally. Not just on Sunday mornings when we gather together to collectively worship but a worshipful attitude of our hearts day in and day out because He loves us and has forgiven us much. And if you think He's only forgiven you a little, then that's how you're going to love Him. A little. That's how you're going to respond to Him in worship. A little. And those who sat at the table with Him began to say to themselves, Who is this? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, he turns to the woman, and he says to her, your faith has saved you. Perfect tense again. Your faith has saved you. It saved her at a point in the past, completely and fully. And the results of that continued on into this encounter that he was in and would continue on. He had saved her. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Oh, what a wonderful example this woman is to us. What a wonderful example she is to us. Her faith has saved her. The Lord had saved her. And she responded in love and in worship to the Savior. There's nothing I enjoy more probably in this life than when we gather around together as a body of the Lord's people who have been saved by His matchless grace and we break that bread and we remember what He has done for us and we worship together. But my brothers and sisters, 
That ought to be the experience of your life day in and day out. Our life of worship because we have been forgiven much. Now this story is to be viewed in the shadow of the cross. It's because of what the Lord Jesus would do that her sins could be forgiven. Right? It's because of what the Lord Jesus Christ would do that her sins could be forgiven. This woman is saved by the blood of Christ, even though that blood had not yet flowed. This woman is saved by that blood, even though that blood had not yet flowed. We're at the, we're at the close of an Old Testament era. We're at the beginning of an, in the opening of a New Testament era. But always, all throughout the Old Testament, all the men of the Old Testament who believed and had faith in God, all those who offered sacrifices year after year after year, They were all saved, not by the blood of the sacrifices, but by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who covered all their sin, forgave all their sin. I have a... And this is probably an error on my behalf. Okay? And I accept that. I I see... We often talk about the atonement that we have in Christ. You know what atonement means, don't you? What does atonement mean? A covering. I have said over and over again, what I possess is not an atonement. The Lord didn't say, they didn't say when, they, when John pointed to, to the Lord Jesus, they didn't say, behold the Lamb of God who covers your sins until the period of time in which He can take them away. No, I'm beyond the cross. I'm beyond the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My sin is gone. Forgiven. It's forgiven. Oh, I'll sin. I'll sin. And I'll continue to sin. And I'll continue to fail. Hopefully not not habitually all the time. As the Lord is working in my life. But I will fail. But the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, continually cleanses me from all my sin. All my sin has been forgiven. And even the guilt of it is removed. You know, people live for years and years, even after they come to know Christ, with the guilt of past sin. And we know what Hebrews teaches in regards to that. Even the guilt is removed when we come to Christ. There's no reason any longer for us to feel guilty over the sins that we have committed in the past because the Lord has forgiven them all. Amen? He has forgiven all our sin. And that should cause us to worship. Forgiveness. You know how my mind goes in and out. You saw that this morning. I just had something I wanted to say, and now it's it's moved on. But within a few moments, it'll float back. And when it floats back, I'll I'll try to try to try to uh, uh, speak it when it floats back to my mind. But the the hymn writers, you'll see this with the hymn writers. They are very careful in the way they portray things. Their theology is usually very, very good. And he talks about, in one of the hymns, Joyce, help me. What is the hymn? Um, 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 
Oh, forgive me. No, well, I love Unbounded Grace. Do you love Unbounded Grace? That's a great song in this hymnal. Ah, it's about the our sins. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Ah, there it is. My sins, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. You notice how careful he is when, his, when he writes? He doesn't say, my sin was nailed to the cross. He says, my sin is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. It is well with my soul. And because it is well with my soul, my heart longs to worship the one who paid the debt for me. My heart longs to worship the one who gave himself for me. Now, the president of the United States, and I'll end with this, may be able to grant pardons. And we know what a pardon is, don't we? When it comes to presidential pardons. A man or a woman can be convicted of a crime, be guilty of the crime, be sent to prison because they're guilty of the crime. And the president can come along and pardon, and that one who is guilty of the crime can be released from prison and set free. But I'll tell you what doesn't happen. He doesn't now become not unguilty. He's still guilty. He's just set free. What we have received is far greater than that kind of pardon. We have been set free. And we are now not guilty. No longer guilty. And there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus tonight? There is no condemnation any longer in our life. And if we have been forgiven much, we ought to love much. Father, we are so very grateful for illustrations that you give to us in, this, in your word that teach us of your great love and compassion. Here was this sinful woman who had no hope for her life. She was broken. She was used up. But she came to you. And you restored her. And you forgave her. And you saved her. And one day, we will all meet her in glory. This woman who poured out her heart in worship because she recognized that she had been forgiven much. Oh, Father. Oh, Father. Too often in our lives, we're just so used to, so used to what we have received that sometimes it just simply becomes common to us. May it never become common to us. What you have done for us, may it never become just common in our lives. But may we recognize day in and day out the deep love that you have shown to us. And may we return it in our worship and our praise of thee. We give you thanks. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. It was great being with you.
this weekend. 